Please turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Today we're continuing our Gospel of John sermon series. And the passage that we have before us today, I should say, is very intense. It's a very, very intense passage, so I just want to say that up front as we look together in the Bible, see what it says and how it applies to our lives. Uh, This passage is the story of Jesus clearing the temple because of the misconduct of what was going on in the temple, and we see anger and how Jesus responded with his anger towards those who were doing the wrong things in the house of God. Very intense passage before us. It's John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Starting in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore it was raised from the dead... His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When I was in college, undergraduate school, I was, I was part of a church plant. Church plant is like a brand new church. We were so new that we didn't even have our own money for a physical building, So our Sunday services took place in a movie theater. It was a small town, rural town, and I really enjoyed being a part of a new ministry and a new church plant and seeing it grow from nothing to something. And there I met one of my best friends still today, and uh, we we worshiped the Lord there together. And we saw God do wonderful things. And week in and week out, we would go to church And hear the word of God and worship and make friends and so on and so forth. We lived in Christian community with those who called this church plant home. One Sunday, my friend couldn't be there, so he asked me to do him a favor. And in addition to being a part of this church, he was part of a ministry. And they were raising money for a particular reason. And he was selling t-shirts to make money for their ministry. And he asked me if I could show up to the church to the service in the movie theater and sell t-shirts in the front while people walked in for, their min- for his ministry. And you know, I'm, I'm 18 at this time, 19, so is he. 
We don't know what we're doing. Is this right? We don't ask for permission. We're millennials. We don't ask for permission. We just do it. And so I set up shop there and uh, started selling the t-shirt thinking that I was doing something good and there was nothing wrong with what I was doing. I was helping a friend out for crying out loud. And then uh, about halfway through, the pastor of this church plant approached me and I could tell he was noticeably angry with his tone, with his body language. He, d- he didn't quite say anything, maybe because he was too nice or maybe because he w- didn't have the boldness to say something, I don't know. But he didn't say anything, but I could just tell that he thought what I was doing was wrong and he was angry. And, you know, that situation, it died down and uh, the service started and it's not like there was that many people that came into the doors. But as I reflect over that situation over the years, I realize, you know, he was right. Any anger that he had was warranted. It's, it's, the issue wasn't what we were doing, but where we were doing it. In this passage, we see that Jesus gets angry and takes action because a place of worship is being used for the wrong reasons. So I'll ask, how, how can we make sure that our conduct in church doesn't make Jesus angry? In this passage, we see what makes Jesus angry in the temple, what he does with his anger in the temple, and how he is the new temple. We start with the first one, and what makes Jesus angry in the temple? In verse 13, it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We're told that the Passover was going on. If you just read that, you might skip over it, but one needs to understand the significance of the Passover for the Jewish people. Of all the feasts that happened and all the feasts that Jewish people celebrated, this was the granddaddy of them all. This would have been a big deal. There would have been a lot of people buzzing in Jerusalem, sort of like Soulard's Farmer's Market on a Saturday morning or downtown St. Louis after a Cardinals or a Blues game. Lots of people in one area, and they came to Jerusalem once a year to celebrate the Passover. And as you know, the Passover has Old Testament roots. In the book of Exodus, the Israelites were enslaved in the country of Egypt under Pharaoh. And they went through, there was many suffering and signs and plagues. And finally, through many different signs and plagues, God rescued his people But the last plague was a very serious one. It was the death of the firstborn. This is from Exodus chapter 12. And God gave his people instructions. And he said, hey, take a lamb without blemish, get the blood, and put the blood in the appropriate places. If I see you do this, I won't take your firstborn. I'll pass over your house. That's why it's called the Passover. And ultimately, that's to foreshadow Jesus, who's the lamb of God without blemish, That is to say, without sin, whose blood on the cross is for anyone who would believe in him. And if you believe and trust in him, God's wrath again will pass over you. And so this was a big deal, passed down from generation to generation. Jews actually, Jewish people still celebrate this today. Uh, Christians rightly don't celebrate it today because of our understanding of the New Testament and how Jesus fulfills the Passover So instead of taking seven or eight days a week, once a week to celebrate this, we celebrate Jesus every single Sunday. But still then and today, the Passover was a very, very big deal. And Jesus goes up to 
Jerusalem, probably with his disciples, to celebrate this. Every male over 20 had to attend. Uh, every, every male over 20 had to pay a temple tax. And what people would do is they'd go up to Jerusalem, pay a temple tax. While they were in the temple, they decided to worship God. And they decided to do a, they would call sacrifice. Usually a sacrifice required an animal of some sort. So that's why we see the animals being sold there because the, these businessmen were taking advantage of the fact that they knew they would come up for the Passover. So Jesus goes into the temple, just like every other male his age, and he, he does not see the house of God being used for the right reasons. Verse 14 says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. In the temple, in the house of God, they're making these sales. Um, the NIV is right when it says temple courts because this is just right outside of the temple where Gentiles, that is to say non-Jewish people, were allowed to come and worship God. For the temple proper was only allowed for Jewish people to go in. So this is right outside the temple. And the temple, for Jewish people, just studying the context again, was very significant. So the Passover is a very big deal. And the temple was a very big deal. King David wanted to build a temple, but God declined that request because of certain sins that he committed. Then Solomon, his son, had the temple built. That was destroyed during the Babylonian era. In the book of Ezra, the temple was rebuilt twice the size. And before Jesus came, Herod had renovations done to the temple. So the temple was a very big deal. This is where God would uh, take up residence with his people. It, it was a symbolic act. It was a place where people would go to worship God. and to, There was a seriousness about it, a reverence about it. And inside was beautiful. And people there really, really valued the temple. So the fact that there was business going on and money changers and animals being sold and merchants and so on and so forth. That's just an absurd thought. So you, you can see what sparks Jesus' anger. Notice Jesus doesn't rebuke the businessmen for what they were doing, but where they were doing it. I mentioned college earlier. I end up graduating college, believe it or not, and two degrees in business, business management and marketing, and uh, I'm, I'm the first to say that business is a good thing, making money is a good thing, sales, coming up with clients, all that is, is wonderful, and you can add tremendous value to the lives of other people and to the lives of society through being a wise, good businessman. Jesus was not rebuking these guys for what they were doing but where they were doing it. It was the location. It was the location that was wrong, and that was sparking the anger of Jesus because in the house of God, in the temple then, in the church now, there should be an element of seriousness. We had our congregational meeting a few weeks ago. We talked about many wonderful things. And uh, in my ending prayer, and throughout various conversations, we, to simplify and to paraphrase, we made a comment about 
you know, when the service starts, let's remember that the service starts. The bell rings, prelude, band plays. Once it hits 9 o'clock or 10.20 for the second service, among the people of God, there should be an element of seriousness and reverence to God and to remember our purpose, which is to worship Him. For some of you, maybe your issue is not that you are interested in coming to church only to make a buck or two to sell shirts or to sell sheep or whatever. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He overturned their tables, putting his hand underneath a table, getting the money and pouring it out. He gets a whip. We shouldn't make too much of the whip. The whip is probably there for the animals. It's hard to ask animals to leave, so he uses a whip. And here, Jesus gets noticeably angry. Angry. We live in a day where a lot of people like to talk about the love of God and the grace of God, which is wonderful and amazing. But here we see a different element or attribute or attitude of Jesus, and that is his anger. This is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And for some people, they have an issue with this because they say, if God is love, how can he get angry? One reply we can say is, because God is love, he must get angry. A lack of anger doesn't mean a lack of love. In fact, a, a truly loving person will get angry at certain things. A righteous anger, a holy anger. Right? So if you're a parent and your kids come home and they say, X, Y, or Z happened to me at school, that should cause an anger within you because you love your children. Or if you're a married guy and someone tries to flirt with your wife, it should cause anger in you. If you're pro-life, the thought of babies being aborted should bother you. If you love your country and you see it going downhill in a certain area, that should cause anger within you or healthy kind of anger. You feel that way because you love your children, you love your wife, you love your country, you love Babies, anger and love are not incompatible. They go together. Whenever something you love is threatened, a healthy, righteous anger is normal. Now, unrighteous anger is different, right? That's getting angry about petty things or personal offenses. But a holy sort of anger is a healthy sign. Uh, someone who never gets angry is, might be a sign of someone who's checked out or passive or is not, not very loving in the first place. So because Jesus loves the temple, because he loves his father, because he is frustrated that the house of God is being used in the wrong reasons, he must get angry and display a sense of anger. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be concerned that he's angry. Uh, we should be concerned if he wasn't angry. And he is, and his love gets into action, and he, he takes action. He doesn't just feel an emotion and do nothing about it, but he moves forward. He sees the house of God being threatened. He sees God's glory being threatened, and he moves forward, and he asks these people to leave. He's not, he doesn't spiral out of control. He, he doesn't lose his temper, and most importantly, he never sins. The Bible says he's without sin. 
but he's noticeably angry and he does something about it. It is possible to be angry and not sin. So a good anger, a good anger over the things you love is uh, something to cultivate and something to steward properly. As he's driving these folks out, he says to them, take these things away. Do not take my father's house and turn it into a house of trade. That's the ESV. Listen to the NIV. The NIV says, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Strong language. Jesus says, stop turning my father's house. Other places, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, and he says, our father. Implication by this, when he says, my, my father's house, is probably the people he was talking to weren't truly disciples. They truly weren't lovers of God. They truly weren't followers of Yahweh. They were just men trying to make a buck or two. So Jesus clears the temple, and I think we would do right to see the symbolism here. As many scholars argue, uh, the first sign that Jesus commits in the Gospel of John is when he takes water into wine. Some think that this is another sign. Uh, there's more going on in this story than simply Jesus getting frustrated that people are using the house of God for the wrong reasons. There's symbolism here. In our day, tradition and symbolism has lost its meaning in some respects. Some of that is good. Some of it's bad. Right? Tradition and symbolism is good. But back then, symbolism was a very big deal. And by ushering these people out of the temple... Jesus was foreshadowing one day that God's people will no longer have to meet in the temple at all. Instead of having to go to a temple, if you're a Christian, God's Holy Spirit lives in you. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says that you are the temple of God. That is to say the Holy Spirit lives in you. Paul also refers to the church as the temple and no longer is it just a day where only Jewish people can go inside the temple. No, no, anyone, Jewish or Gentile, Gentile means non-Jewish, rich or poor, black or white, educated or not, anyone, anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus and believes in him, you don't have to go to a religious building of some sort. You can worship him all throughout the week. Whenever you gather with his people, whether it's in a movie theater or a really nice building like this one, God's manifest presence is there. So we don't need to go just to a, a physical location. Jesus was showing that one day this temple, actually, he mentions another place in the Gospels that it would be destroyed in Luke and in Mark. And that came true 70 years later after he died and rose from the dead. The temple was destroyed. That was a prophecy and it came true. So, so Jesus clearing the temple, there's symbolism here that one day he would be the new temple and one day, the way that people worship him would be differently. In any building, whether it's an elementary school or a movie theater or outside or inside of a nice building, we're no longer confined to a building because God's Holy Spirit lives in us. The disciples remembered, verse 17, zeal for your house will consume me. John gets to quote, zeal for your house will consume me. That's an Old Testament quote. Once again, a New Testament writer is borrowing Old Testament language. 
one-third of the New Testament is literally Old Testament references. So anyone who says the Old Testament doesn't matter doesn't understand the New Testament, doesn't understand the Bible at all. So here, the Apostle John is using New Old Testament language from the 69th Psalm. He says that it's a psalm of King David. King David was very devoted to God and very devoted to the temple back then. And as a result, he had many enemies and a lot of people that didn't like him. Uh, similarly to being a Christian today, if you're devoted to God and you're devoted to the church, some people just don't want anything to do with God. They might make fun of you or they might attack you. And here King David was uh, devoting himself to God and his temple and so on and so forth. Um, a different kind of temple. They, meet, they met in the tent of meeting. And as a result, he was getting a lot of criticism. So John was using that verse from the 69th Psalm to say, yes, that's true of King David, but now it's also true of Jesus, and even more so with Jesus. Look at, look at his zeal. Look at his passion. It says, zeal for your, my father's house will consume me. The language of consume me is strong. You get a sense of an all-consuming passion, a singular devotion. One mission, which is to, to glorify God and be in his temple, to be in his house, to be devoted to him and to his church. One commentator said of Jesus, he says, John portrays Jesus as one who is consumed with passion for God's glory and driven by a desire to remove from his people any obstacles to proper worship. That's what drove Jesus to clear out the temple. A zeal, a passion for God. You could remember Phineas from the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 25. Before they met in a temple, they met in the tent of meeting. And one day, there was a guy and a gal who decided to go to the tent of meeting to commit sexual sin in the tent of meeting. This wasn't a, oh, I hope we don't get caught kind of deal, but this was a middle finger to God, middle finger to Moses and the Israelites, and they did this unapologetically. As a result, Phineas, through zeal and passion, got up and he executed both of them on the spot. God promoted him. He said, look at Phineas. He has a zeal, a passion for me. He, he, he gets angry and he takes action. Obviously, that was then and this is now, and the laws then were differently. But Phineas is one of the key figures in the Old Testament that shows a sense of zeal for God, an emotion that isn't just an emotion by itself, although that matters, but it also leads to action and how you live. Let me ask you this. Do you have a passion for God and His church? Having a zeal for God and His church isn't, you know, it's, it's less of caring about what the interior design looks like of the building or trying to control what the church website looks like or being the one who decides what we eat at the next church potluck or all those things matter to various degrees, especially what we're going to eat at the next potluck, but 
there's a lot of little things that we can do or control or organize, which it, it matters, but that's not the, the big picture. Ask, ask yourself these questions as a self-evaluation. I've only got four. Could have had 30, so you're welcome. I'm just going to give you four. Uh, do... <clears throat> Do I have a desire to see Jesus exalted during our worship services? Uh, do distractions that prevent God's people from worshiping Him rightly or displays of irreverence of any sort, does that bother me? Is my main concern for the church not my personal preferences, but that the gospel is rightly preached? When I visit another church and the Bible is not taught and it feels like a concert or an entertainment service, does that bother me on the inside? If you answered yes to one or all of these, that's a sign of God's working in your life. That there's at least in some measure a passion for God and his church. And Bethesda, I know, I know we're a passionate church. I know we have people here who are dedicated to the house of God and dedicated to the church. Some of you come here a couple times a week and you're always serving, you're always helping, you're always giving and you've been doing this here 50, 60, 70 years. And I think I bring a little bit of encouragement at least to some degree from maybe being young or having energy but let me just say many of you are so encouraging to me I know as a pastor, a lot of people watch my every move, but I'm observant too, and I'm intuitive too, and I'm watching you too. So if you're going to criticize my tie, I, I, have, I can say what I want about your outfit too. But I, I watch some of you, and I've been watching you for several months in a loving way, and I just, I see your attendance at Lunch Bunch, your desire to help people in your family, your desire to be here to help with the building, your, your love for Bethesda, your love for the church, I'm so encouraged by that. I really am. Your, your zeal is being, I'm, some things aren't just taught, they're caught. And you're, you're helping me grow in passion, so I just, I appreciate that so much. You know, zeal is not just, oh, that's the next generation and I'm this age. No, no, anyone who's breathing and who's a Christian, this should be something to cultivate a passion for him and a passion for the place where we worship. And our zeal here at Bethesda, just, it takes action as well. You know, we, we were part of a different denomination for a long time. Things were going well until they weren't. And then there was a different views on marriage and different views on Jesus and different views on the Bible. As a result, through Pastor Mark's leadership and other people, we took action with our passion and we entered into a new one that's very healthy and very thriving. That's another sign of passion and zeal amongst the members and amongst the people of Bethesda. So praise God for your passion, but we should always be seeking to increase in it and grow and the more we know God with our minds, the, way, the more we know the word, the more we spend time with God, the more our passion and our zeal will increase. And the more our conduct in the Sunday service will be pleasing to him. 
Next, we see that Jesus replaces the temple. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? So Jesus clears the temple, huge scene. Jewish authorities see him, like, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't just do this and not have us talk to you. So they come to him and they say, what sign are you going to do for us? Uh, essentially what they're trying to ask is they're, they're getting a sense that he might not just be anybody. He's not just some regular guy who came up for the Passover. He has authority of some sort. People follow his directions. Uh, let's, let's see if he's like a heaven-sent prophet of some sort. Let's see if he'll give us a sign. If you're really God or if you're really something more than just a regular person, why don't you do a sign to validate your claim? If you're a great singer and you meet someone for the first time and they ask you, what do you like to do? You say, I love to sing. I'm a great singer. And they say, all right, sing. Let me hear you sing. And you say, no. I just met you. I'm not going to subject myself to the evaluation of someone I just met. I don't exist for your entertainment. No, that would be a proper way to respond. A little bit more gentle than that, though. Throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, people would come up to Jesus often and say, give us a sign, do a miracle, come on. You say you're God, let's see something here, do something cool. And often Jesus would say, no. He did do miracles to validate his divinity, that is to say to validate the fact that he's fully God, always has been, always will be. But whenever he did his miracles, it was, it was indeed to validate his divinity, but often to help broken people. Those who were blind, those who were sick, those who had leprosy, to provide food, so on and so forth. Not to be some sort of entertainment clown. And so when, when, when these people approach Jesus, they're actually being more disrespectful than what it seems like. But Jesus continues in on the dialogue, and then he, he, does, he says something like this. He says, uh, this is the sign I'm going to give you. Verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. <laughs> that would have been insane to hear from a Jewish person. Like, we, we, we didn't have a temple, then we had a temple, then it got torn down, and we, we, just, we, we built it again, and then it just had renovations. You're going to tear down the temple that was like a capital offense back then. That was on the same pedigree as murder. You didn't touch the temple in that way. So the fact that Jesus answered that way shows that he was sort of trying to really get to the core of what was going on. Uh, the Jews replied and said, it, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? But once again, Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple. The last two verses tells us that he was talking about his body, the temple of his body, that one day he would go to the cross. This was a foreshadowing to what would eventually happen, and that he would go to the cross, die on the cross, in our place, for our sins, and after three days, rise from the dead. His body was torn down, and then it rose again. That's what he was trying to say to them.
And because of Jesus, we, we, we no longer need to celebrate the Passover once a week. We celebrate Jesus every Sunday. And because of Jesus, we don't need to take a lamb without blemish and put blood on a certain spot. If we believe in him, all our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. No longer do we need to go to a temple to sacrifice an animal for, on God's behalf to worship him. But because Jesus died and rose from the dead, we can worship him every Sunday. And if you've placed your faith in him, let me encourage you to do so in a reverent way. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for the saints of Bethesda. I'm so encouraged by those who have been here 40, 50, 60, 70 years. Wow, they are such a blessing to me and such a blessing to the rest of us. Uh, Lord, would you just increase their zeal for you? Would you help our conduct here to please you? Lord, we thank you that we get to socialize and we get to eat food and we get to joke around. These are gifts from you and we ask that we would continue to cherish them but also help us to remember that when the service starts, that you're watching, Lord, and that our conduct really matters to you. And so allow the preaching, allow the worship, allow the, any aspect of the liturgy. Uh, may it bring glory to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, the only God, you. Uh, Lord, help us to have the right attitude and the right heart motives to encounter the living God. And would you just build your people up, Lord? Would you just reward us for our effort to come here? And help us to meet with you and to be strengthened by you, Lord. Help us not to assume, let us not make assumptions. Help us to evaluate our hearts. Help us to grow in you. In Jesus' name, amen.